problem with seizing a throne by force of arms is that if you are successful you demonstrate to others how easy it is to achieve. Though Edward IV claimed the throne by right, not enough of the established nobility or gentry of England agreed with him. The trouble was that in Henry VI, with all his faults, they already had a king anointed by God. In our very secular age, it is easy to dismiss the importance of that fact. Now, as you very well know, when Edward wrestled the throne from Henry, he did so with the aid of the very powerful and ambitious Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. We have seen how Warwick, in causing the crisis of 1469-71, to attempted to supplant his earlier protégé, Edward, with another one, George, Duke of Clarence. Ultimately, Warwick failed to be the kingmaker that history so regularly insists that he was, but much blood was spilled in an attempt to install another monarch by force. Clarence, of course, returned to the Yorkist fold in 1471, rejoining his brother to help crush Warwick and Lancaster too. But what lessons did the three surviving Yorkist brothers draw from what had happened in 1471? The answers to this question are, I think, the key to what happened later after Edward's death in 1483. Edward, for his part, learned that you couldn't really trust anyone, and in particular you couldn't trust anyone with a claim to the throne. Well, you might say that's pretty obvious. But in fact, before 1460, having a claim to the throne was not in itself a reason to rebel against a king. Otherwise, there would have been constant wars of succession in England throughout the Middle Ages. When medieval English kings were overthrown in the past, it was not just because someone else thought they had a better claim. When Edward II, for example, was deposed, the line of succession continued unbroken with his son. When Henry VI himself became king, he was an infant with several uncles who could easily have swept him aside if they chose to do so, but they didn't. But by 1471 things had changed. Edward had seized the throne. Warwick had taken it back in Henry's name and then, improbably, Edward IV had regained it. That sequence of events was unprecedented. So Edward knew that he would need to build his dynasty with great care if it was to survive him. Though he continued to be lenient to former opponents, he needed to ensure that it would be difficult for them to act against him. He had to build up the strength of those who were most loyal to his regime, so that the greatest power in the realm would be concentrated in the hands of a few magnates that he trusted. His youngest brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, a paragon of loyalty, was amongst that group. But George, Duke of Clarence, despite his vital change of heart in 1471, was not. Having said that, Edward had to reward Clarence for what he had done, so he gave him extensive lands in the southwest, which were handily available because of the prominent Courtney family's support of Lancaster. 
Was this great wedge of land enough to satisfy Clarence? Well, no, it wasn't. Clarence had drawn his own lessons from the events of 1471. You might think he would be thanking his lucky stars that he was still alive. But no, Clarence was not that man. The lessons he took from the crisis were rather different. Firstly, he learned that without him, Edward IV would have lost. Also, since Edward's heir was only a small child, Clarence was still in the line of succession. Thus he saw himself, as ever, as a very important man, and as such he should be appropriately rewarded. Even before 1471, Clarence had extensive land holdings, but the demise of the Earl of Warwick meant that one of the largest legacies of the Middle Ages was now up for grabs, and Clarence, as the husband of Warwick's elder daughter, let's not forget, wanted it for himself. The Warwick legacy was therefore a big and complex issue in 1471. But it was not just a simple matter of the king giving the lands Warwick once held to someone else. Critically, though the king could dispose of some of the Neville lands Warwick held, others he could not. Also, much of Warwick's holding derived from his wife's inheritance and was in theory still held by his widow, Anne Beauchamp, Countess of Warwick. The Countess, inconveniently, was still alive and in sanctuary at Bewley Abbey. She petitioned the King, and virtually everyone else she could think of, to keep her lands. In 1471, Edward rewarded Richard with Warwick's Yorkshire lands around Middleham and Sheriff Hutton, a Neville heartland, as well as some other northern lands of the Nevilles. He also gave him the lands of the defeated Lancastrian Earl of Oxford, John de Vere, and several other rebels. These lands gave Richard a presence too in the east of the country. Clarence could not have been happy about the loss of the Neville lands to his younger brother, but he was even less happy when Richard aimed to marry Anne Neville, widow of the Lancastrian Prince of Wales, but more significantly the co-heir to Warwick with her sister Isabel, who, of course, was Clarence's wife. If Richard of Gloucester married Anne Neville, then he would undoubtedly contest Clarence every step of the way as he tried to gain the whole Warwick inheritance. Fiction writers like to suggest a long-standing romantic relationship between Richard and Anne because of Richard's presence in her father's household in the mid-1460s. But for me, that's a long stretch, though of course not impossible. More likely is that for any nobleman, Anne Neville was clearly the best catch in England. Sixteen years old and a major heiress. What's not to like? From Anne's perspective, Richard was the perfect choice, because he was just about the only man in England who could pursue her inheritance against Clarence with any hope of success. It's quite possible that Edward himself encouraged the marriage, because he would certainly rather that his loyal brother Richard shared the Warwick inheritance rather than his suspect brother George got all of it. Clarence actively tried to prevent the marriage, and during the winter of 1471-2 to 2, 
Relations between the two brothers were, shall we say, rather tense. To get his bride, Richard was obliged, basically, to carry her off, willingly, I might add, in February 1472, and deposit her in the sanctuary of St Martin-le-Grand in London. She stayed there until she married Richard, most likely in July 1472. Events, as they say, had moved quickly, and far too quickly for the liking of the Duke of Clarence. The settlement of the Warwick inheritance took rather longer. The two brothers put their rival claims to the council. Warwick's widow, Anne, tried to fight her corner too, and the dispute dragged on. In June 1473, Richard got his mother-in-law, Anne, out of sanctuary, prompting fears by Clarence that she would give her lands to Richard. But only in 1474 was the dispute settled, when Parliament did as it was told and confirmed that the Countess of Warwick's lands would be dealt with as if she was dead. This was a wholly unusual and deeply unpleasant measure. But it meant that a deal could then be done between the two warring brothers. So basically, Clarence and Gloucester shared their wives' inheritance between them, though Clarence was given the titles of Earl of Warwick and Salisbury. None of the brothers emerged from this mess very well, and Edward himself had been forced to sacrifice principle and legal precedence in order to solve the dispute. But here is a clear example of how he differed from Henry VI. Edward, ever the pragmatist, found a way to keep the peace between his two powerful brothers. It wasn't pretty, but it was effective. So what of Richard, Duke of Gloucester? It's fair to say that Richard remained quite reasonable throughout the whole sorry process, but like Clarence, he was determined to get his share of the Warwick inheritance, and equally indifferent to the fact that his mother-in-law would suffer as a result. Over the next year or two, Richard's dominance in the north was established, but he shared control of that important and dangerous region with Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. Percy remained independent of Gloucester, but the two cooperated, when required, to ensure a degree of harmony. So for most of the reign, Richard was powerful in the north, but not by any means all-powerful. And then there's Clarence. Clarence was, of course, never happy, and he had not secured the whole inheritance he wanted. His unwillingness to compromise throughout was the chief reason why the dispute became so acrimonious and was so long-lived. But his attitude did not win him much favour from either Edward, who felt Clarence had pushed him into a corner, or Richard, who resented the lengths he had to go to receive his share. In 1476, Clarence's wife Isabel had died after a difficult childbirth, and this meant that the Duke was back in the marriage market, which did not bode well given his frequent errors of judgment in the past. Clarence, like every other nobleman of his time, saw marriage as a means of advancement and profit, and he was keen to act fast. His sister Margaret, the widow of Duke Charles of Burgundy, a Yorkist ally, suggested a marriage to her stepdaughter Mary, the sole heir to Burgundy. 
Edward would not allow it, nor another suggested match with the sister of James III, King of Scotland. Let's be honest, Edward would have been a fool to allow any marriage which might enhance Clarence's power or resources. Needless to say, Clarence reacted with his usual petulance. He withdrew from court and sulked. Also possibly circulated stories that his elder brother was a bastard and should not be king. We have no evidence that he plotted against Edward, but it must be highly likely. He was not a man to sit and contemplate his troubles for long without attempting to do something about them. In May 1477, Edward gave him fair warning by prosecuting to the fullest degree several men, one of whom was of Clarence's household, for inciting others to treason. The object of the exercise was to persuade Clarence to shut up and toe the line. It failed because Clarence decided to weigh in and declare his support for the very men who had already been condemned and executed. By the end of June 1477, Clarence was in the Tower awaiting charges of treason. In January 1478, Parliament met to hear the case of attainder against Clarence introduced by Edward himself. In his speech, Edward stressed that despite the Duke's former treasons, he would have been prepared to forgive his brother, except that his brother did not know when to stop. In other words, Edward could not see how he could continue to trust him. In a case of attainder, there was often no proper trial or examination of evidence. A man was simply accused of treason, some justifications were provided, and usually Parliament agreed. And thus it was with Clarence. He was executed privately to reduce the fallout from the death of a royal duke. Whether by being drowned in a barrel of wine, as was put about at the time, we shall never know. It's difficult to feel much sympathy for Clarence, because he seemed hell-bent on self-aggrandisement or self-destruction. Again, Edward had shown himself to be a strong king, capable of the most unpleasant of deeds to maintain his authority and the peace of the kingdom. Some historians have suggested that it was an example of Edward losing his grip in his later years. I'd say it was exactly the opposite. He did what was necessary to secure his throne, no more and no less. The removal of Clarence meant that no one now threatened Edward's throne. Well, that's good to know.